Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe DeVader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games that they come from, without getting too bogged down in music theory. Joe, what are this week's games? Up first is 2014's Child of Light, a poetic journey through a watercolor land filled with dark creatures where a young princess must fight to find her way home. Following that is the open-world stealth game that fulfilled the promise of becoming a samurai. Not made by Ubisoft, but by the team that made Sly Cooper. 2020's Ghost of Tsushima. It's uh, tough to come up with a theme this week, but... They have swords. Yeah, both of them have got swords. Aurora's got a sword. Jin's got a katana. And also there's some artistry going on. Ghost of Tsushima has its artistic open world with a whole bunch of colors. There's the watercolor thing going on in Child of Light. It works. It works. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, there really isn't much you can pay between these two games, except for one is a game by Ubisoft and the other is a game that is doing what Ubisoft should have done, like, ten years ago. You know, that's a really good point, actually. But we're back with our normal duo episode after a couple solo episodes. Hopefully those worked out for you. It was definitely a lot easier on the production side of things for the couple weeks where being out of society for a week on vacation. Honestly, I'm coming off, like, the day after doing all of my work on the Ori Will the Wisps episode. It's like... All right, now do the next one. <laughs> so it's just like, all right, we're right back into it. Original sound chat. Here we go. Uh, Joe, how are you doing? It's been a while. What are you playing? Honestly, I finished Neo The World Ends With You. Nice. It is currently my game of the year. I'm not sure anything is going to top it, but it was it was really, really, really good. Soundtrack is fantastic. Can't wait to talk about that at the end of the year. I'm kind of conflicted as to whether or not I could say, like, oh, even if you haven't played the first game, you should be fine jumping into this one. Because uh, <laughs> some of the later games, is like, boy, I hope you played The World Ends With You, buddy. Not just that, but boy, I hope you played the new stuff that was in the Switch re-release. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. Nothing that would, like, completely upend and make the story incomprehensible, but, like, some stuff loses a bit of weight. Uh, at the very end there. I also played and reviewed a game called Road 96. Oh, yeah. It's an indie game about uh, going on a road trip as a teenager trying to flee a totalitarian nation that is sending teenagers to work camps, which is not what I thought what that game was going to be about. Uh, but it, it was very, very interesting. Very janky. I will be the first to say that. It is quite janky and the developers ambitions might have been a little more high than their abilities but overall i think it was a pretty good uh game i think i would definitely recommend that maybe not on switch uh and then i have been working my way through the great Ace attorney chronicles it's really good so far that's really good to hear because i'm uh getting that game next to rental so I'm really excited to give that one a shot. So I'll be playing it as well shortly. Also kind of want to give Boyfriend Dungeon a shot. That kind of looks up, you know, the, the 
Hades-like dungeon crawler, not a mm-hmm. roguelike or anything like that, but with the dating sim elements mixed in, a little bit of controversy, just stuff that's totally not necessary or warranted. So that's been interesting to see that in some news headlines, but definitely want to give that game a shot on Game Pass. Also, speaking of Game Pass, uh, tomorrow at time of recording, 12 minutes comes out. And I'm very, very interested in that. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be playing that for sure. I'm really excited for that one. But I, I'm back on my Hades kick, this time on Xbox, because it's on Game Pass. And so I started a new save file after clearing <laughs> my 100th clear on Switch. So uh, I am three runs in. So that's even before the call is activated. And I almost got to the second phase of just Theseus. So I made some uh, pretty okay progress. Damn. Like, at start, damn. But you gotta play with God Mode. I mean, that's... You just gotta do that. That's... <laughs> that's yeah, fine. I can't go back anymore without that. It's uh, it's fine. I'm bad at video games, and I can admit that about myself. Yeah, it is definitely uh, jarring to uh, see how much damage they do. That's for sure in the <laughs> early game. Anyway, uh, we're gonna skip the Composer Follow-Up News segment, because I covered a whole bunch of them thanks to Joe's help on last week's episode, and... Well, that's 24 hours. We had the Pokemon Presents Direct. Not much new information there. I'm amazed that Pokemon Legends Arceus is still trying to hit that January 28th, 2022 date. Yeah, same. But also, like, that game looks neat. That game looks really neat. (laughs) It showed a lot better than it did the first time. And they're really going into Breath of the Wild, which I'm all about. Yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting. I hope that game is as good as it looks. Because otherwise, my heart's gonna be broken. Speaking of broken hearts, let's talk about Child of Light. Hey. That sort of makes sense, but not really. You know, one of my famous segues. So Child of Light was originally released on April 19th, 2014 for PC, PS3, PS4, Vita, Wii U, Xbox 360, and Xbox One. That's a lot of consoles to launch on at once. It was an Ubi art game, right? I believe so. Uh, it was developed by Ubisoft Montreal and published by Ubisoft, and the art style makes me think that, yeah, probably. So, yeah, probably has a lot of versatility, like, uh, what was that game, Valiant Hearts? Mm-hmm. The Great War, yeah. Uh, and then it released on Switch on October 11th, 2018. That's the most recent release it had. It is a side-scrolling RPG where the player takes control of a young woman named Aurora. Aurora is the beloved daughter of a duke of Austria in 1895, but one night, Aurora seemingly passes away in her sleep, and the Duke becomes bedridden with grief over her loss. However, Aurora is not actually dead, and has instead been transported to the magical kingdom of Lemuria, which is currently ruled by the cruel Umbra, Queen of the Night. Umbra has stolen the mirror that can be used to travel between our world and Lemuria, and Aurora is given wings to help her retrieve this portal. These wings give her infinite ability to fly as her mean means of transportation, so somehow in my head, I think I said this when I was playing it, for some reason, for like five years, I thought Child of Light was a platformer, and then I played it. It is literally the least platforming game that's ever existed. (laughs) Yeah, and I remember saying, it's like, no, it's always been a turn-based RPG. 
I genuinely have no idea where I got the idea that it was a platformer. Like, legit, have no clue. That was Rayman's job with UbiArt. Yeah, that's true. Man, that game's good. We should talk about that game at some point. Oh, oh my god, yes. Oh. So, Aurora is also joined by a firefly named Igniculus, who can be controlled with the right stick and can glow brightly in order to open chests or blind enemies on the overworld. And as you mentioned, it is a turn-based RPG with turn-based battles. In battle, the player controls two party members, which the party will eventually include Aurora, obviously, Rubella, a jester who has trouble keeping up with the poetic nature of the story, we'll get to that in a bit, Finn, a young, anxious Kapili with command over elemental magic. The Kapili are kind of dwarf... No might actually be a better description, but kind of that analog there. Uh, Nora, Aurora's stepsister, who has also been pulled into Lemuria through a mirror. Robert, a Populi trader with a mastery of the bow and arrow. The Populi people are uh, anthropomorphic mice. Tristis, Rubella's brother and fellow jester, who just kind of seems to have depression. That seems to be his character trait. <laughs> He's the, he's Pagliacci, basically. Oengus, a Katagita, which is a big, burly, bear-like man-creature thing with big, long claws. And it has a shamed past, and he's probably my favorite party member. And Genoveffa, or Jen, for short, a Piscian sorceress who has been tragically orphaned, and the Piscians are essentially, they're Zora, they're fish people. So the battle system actually works a lot like classic Final Fantasy's ATB system, but it has sort of this this very unique twist on it. So during a fight, I'm going to try to explain this as best I can. During the fight, there is a small bar at the bottom of the screen. Two-thirds of it are marked as weight, and the final third is marked as cast. And then there will be icons representing both the active party members in the fight as well as the enemies on the other side that are gradually moving along this bar. And the speed at which they move depends on that specific character's speed stat. Once a party member icon reaches the cast section of the bar, time freezes, and then the player can choose which action that character will take during this turn. So are they going to use magic? Are they going to attack? Are they going to defend? What are, what are they going to do? Uh, every action has a different speed at which it is cast, with more powerful attacks and spells taking longer to use. And once the character's icon has reached the end of the cast area, they will then perform their action. But if they are attacked before they have reached the end of the meter, they will be interrupted and sent back into the weight portion of the meter, having been unable to do any of their abilities. Uh, Igniculus can also be used during battle. He uh, can shine his light on a party member, and they'll slowly begin to regain health very slowly. I mean, like, 3 HP every 3 seconds. Uh, and if he uses it on an enemy, their movement on the action meter will be slowed. Uh, this is limited to a meter of its own, which can either refill slowly over time, or it can be refilled by collecting glowing dream fragment things during battle. And so the question becomes of this game, can Aurora recover the magical mirror from Umbra? 
Can she help the people of Lemuria with their problems along the way? And just who is the evil queen of the night? So this is where I'll ask, Peter, what are your experiences with Child of Light? I believe I have this game on Wii U of all the different platforms to have it on. I believe yeah, with the touch screen and all that uh, to move Aniculous along and all that. I, I think that's what made sense for picking that platform over all the others, but I haven't played it. It definitely did feel like playing it on Switch, which is where I played it. Uh, it did feel like he would be a lot more... It'd be a lot easier to control if he were on a touchscreen. Mm-hmm. But we have a friend who is a big fan of Child of Light. She's been kind of singing and praising for a couple of years now, and I've been meaning to play it for years. And I don't know what exactly led to me going, no, we're going to do it now. But I'm glad I did. It's very, very good. I will not... It's short for an RPG. It's like 12 hours long. Hmm. But... You know, it's it's an indie... Te- okay, it's not an indie game. It was made by Ubisoft Montreal. But, like, <laughs> you, it's a lot smaller in scope than most other stuff that comes out of Montreal. <laughs> I found some kind of interesting behind-the-scenes facts about the game, being that uh, it's got a lot of content that was cut before it came out. There's a lot of information on the inspirations and stuff. And also, maybe a bit of a bummer, for the legacy at the end. So let's get on into that. So when asked about the inspirations for this game from the team and stuff like that, they uh, listed things like the art of Studio Ghibli, as well as Yoshitaka Amano, Arthur Rackham, John Bauer, and Edmund Dulac. And also they cited the game's Vagrant Story, Final Fantasy VIII, and Limbo. In fact, Yoshitaka Amano who I'm sure we've talked about him at least a little bit before, because he is best known for his illustrations for Final Fantasy games. Uh, For instance, the official artwork of characters like Terra. That was him. They actually went and commissioned him to illustrate a poster based on Child of Light, and that poster was given to those who bought the deluxe edition of the game, but weirdly enough, only on PC, PS3, and PS4. Hmm. None of the other platforms, apparently. But that's that's really cool. I imagine that was probably, like, a highlight of the experience of, like, oh, man, we based a lot of stuff on this this guy's artwork, and now he's going to draw a poster for our game. Sounds rad. In terms of character design, Ubisoft actually partnered with Cirque du Soleil to help with the costume designs. Hmm. Good partnership. Yeah. There was a video I watched for part of the research where they actually went to one of the guys from Cirque du Soleil, and he was like, yeah, we uh, we were brought in to help with uh, character designs and costumes and stuff like that, but also to like sort of work on the theatric vibe that the game was going for, the theatric aesthetic. It certainly worked out pretty well. The game's dialogue, this is the most interesting thing in my opinion, it's almost entirely in the form of a poem. Characters speak in a form of poetic ballads using iambic syllable counts. Uh, I figured it was specifically iambic pentameter because that's the only thing I remember from high school English class. Uh, If you don't know what that is, Shakespeare is more often than not written in iambic pentameter. 
Same thing with Emily Dickinson and how they're like, oh, mm-hmm. you can match it with the Pokemon anime theme song. And it's like, <laughs> because I kindly stopped for Dev, he kindly stopped for me <laughs> or something like that. Oh, there's that meme that goes around every now and then. If you know it, you know it. Beautiful. Uh, but they actually did not do a specific meter because they figured that if they did that, it would actually be even more hard to write dialogue than it already was this was basically to give them at least a little bit more flexibility with how to write lines uh the wikipedia article describes it as quote each four line stanza sees the second and fourth lines end with rhyming words unless you are talking to rubella whose entire character gimmick is that she pauses right before she's supposed to say the rhyming word and then says a non-rhyming synonym Hmm. Which, honestly, makes her kind of endearing. So the main writer, Jeffrey Yoholem, though, states that the hardest part of writing dialogue wasn't so much keeping to the rhyming scheme, which I imagine is hard on its own already. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a reason why Rare gave up in Banjo-Tooie. <laughs> but instead, the main challenge was making sure that each character still had a unique voice, even when speaking with the same sort of poetic cadence like they're all talking with the same rhythm how do we make it so that they still have their own distinct way of talking and i I, that sounds like a fascinating challenge honestly and i think they pull it off overall they also had like i said many plans for the narrative that changed as the game's development went on for instance the original plan had been for aurora to slowly age up as the narrative pushed forward She would start at five years old, and gradually throughout the game, she would age up to 20 years old. And this was meant to be a way to physically reflect her RPG-style level-ups in the game. However, this concept was pared down super heavily. Uh, Aurora now only ages up at one point in the story, and it's a result of successfully beating a specific enemy. Uh, They were also, at one point, planning to include multiple endings for the player to choose between, but this also got cut. The final game only features one ending. That's the one you get. And that's unfortunate, right? Because I think the ending thing makes sense, because then the team has like one specific canon ending that they want their vision to be, but I think it would have been fascinating to see her age slowly throughout the game. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been really cool, and I imagine that was probably pared down because of development time, but I'm not 100% on that. They had also given thoughts to bringing in a Prince Charming-style character, whom Aurora would fall in love with, but the writers felt this would be too cliche and also would potentially detract from their idea of Aurora as a strong female character, and they also felt like just sort of leaning too hard on a theme of love was kind of a crutch for the narrative. So they kind of just scrapped the idea of a love interest in general. The story instead shifted to focus on themes of growing up in the modern world, sacrificing time to help others, becoming an adult, and how one does that by themselves. Child of Light is actually, though, this is my favorite thing. I had no idea this was a thing. It is loosely based on a real-world theoretical continent that probably doesn't exist, but uh, the existence of a lost continent called Lemuria was proposed in 1864 
by zoologist Philip Sclater, who theorized that it had sunk into the Indian Ocean. This was his theory to explain why lemur fossils could be found in Madagascar and India, but not in Africa or the Middle East. And then in 1912, uh, some guy was like, actually, uh, continental drift is a thing. And the scientific community embraced that as being correct. And so, yeah, Lemuria is not real. But I had no idea that there was a theory about something like that. You know, maybe that's where Atlantis is. I don't know. <laughs> Have we looked? Uh, so, Child of Light, when it came out, was reviewed positively. Highest Metacritic is 89 on PS3, uh, with its lowest being 77 on PC. Uh, praise was given to the game's beautiful art style and unique battle system, though some critics felt that the rhyming dialogue felt a bit forced. I never really got that impression, but I could see why some people might. Many reviewers also compared it to other Ubisoft titles that had already begun to grow stale at the time, basically comparing them to the big names like Assassin's Creed and Watch Dogs, and mentioned that they felt that this was actually the kind of thing they wanted to see from Ubisoft more often than annualized sequels. And maybe Ubisoft has sort of learned, but not really. When was the last Uba art game? That's a good question. Let's see. Uh, Valiant Hearts came after it. A lot of the Just Dance games are based on the UbiArt framework. Mm. Uh, Rayman Mini? Rayman Adventures, Gravity Falls, Legend of the Gnome Gemulet. So maybe a lot of mobile games. I feel like this was like one of the last bigger ones, though. Yeah, I didn't know Just Dance used UbiArt. Huh. We're just learning so much today about hidden continents and Ubisoft. So, a book was released for free in April of 2015 for the game's one-year anniversary. It was titled Child of Light, Reginald the Great, and it follows a character named Reginald two years after the events of the game, and they had announced that two more books in the game's universe were currently in the works, but they never came out. In 2018, a screenwriter by the name of Tasha Huo announced that she was writing a pilot for a live-action TV adaptation of Child of Light. But no information has since come out about said adaptation. And then, in 2015, it was announced that more games in the Child of Light universe were actually already being worked on, including a prequel and a direct sequel, which might have been both the same game. This sequel was once again teased in 2018 alongside the Switch release. Ubisoft, apparently back in the day, had reportedly been very happy with Child of Light's sales. Like, it sold pretty good. But from the sound of it, this sequel might have been shelved. Uh, director Patrick Plorde, I hope that's how that's pronounced, I don't know. Plord? He voiced that if there was a sequel in development, he is not involved and also cites Ubisoft's newfound focus on everybody's favorite current trend, games as a service, as a possible reason why a sequel was probably no longer likely. So that's a bummer. Anyways, let's talk about the artist behind the music in the game. Her name is Beatrice Martin, but she, until recently, went by her stage name, Code de Prat. 
that's how she pronounces it in the video that I watched. I'm going to trust her to pronounce her own name. Uh, she was born on September 22nd, 1989 in Ultramont, Quebec. She began playing piano at age three. And at nine years old, she entered the Montreal Conservatory of Music to study there for five years. Started at three, entered a conservatory at nine. Woo! Damn. At 15, she joined the band December Strikes First as a keyboardist. And from 2007 to 2008, she also served as a keyboardist for the band Bonjour Brumaire. Her name was chosen in order to give herself as she puts it, the identity of a band as opposed to a solo artist. I don't quite know what she means by that, but also I kind of guess I do. I don't know. Uh, originally, she called herself her pirate heart. But when she decided to stop writing songs in English, she translated the name to French, hence Cal de Prat. Her debut album, that shared the stage name she had chosen, was released on September 16th, 2008. And then what really sent her career flying into space, in 2009, a Quebec photographer used her song Ensemble in a viral video titled Time Lapse of a Baby Playing with His Toys. I'm not familiar with that video, probably because it was 2009. And this song's inclusion in the video actually attracted a ton of media attention for her work. She ended up showing up on talk shows because of it. And so that really, really put her career in, in faster motion. Her most recent album, titled... All right, here we go. En cas de tempête, c'est jardin c'est fermé. God, I hope I... Did that correctly. I'm so sorry if I didn't. If you speak French, I don't speak French. But it was released in June of 2018. The name translates to, in case of a storm, this garden will be closed. Uh, and that's probably going to be the final album released under the Cal de Parade name. Uh, in December of 2018, she stated that she had no plans to do any further albums under that name, but also specified that she does not plan to stop making music. She has collaborated with multiple artists over the years, including French artists like Julien Doré, rock bands like Simple Plan, and I'm contractually obligated by our friend to mention that she has also collaborated with Canadian pop artist Lights. Wow. Yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, so if you're wondering about this time lapse of a baby playing with his toys video it has 2.58 million views on youtube the video takes about 15 seconds to actually start but the song is delightful hmm. that's really the highlight of it honestly that would make sense if that's what really kind of launched her career so in terms of discography a child of light appears to be the only work that she's done in video games. I kind of hope she does more at some point, because damn. But she also did the soundtrack for season five of a Canadian drama series called Trauma, which I assume is probably like their ER. I know they get Grey's Anatomy, so they probably don't need that, but their house, I don't know, something around there. She's also done four studio albums in terms of historical development research, I mentioned it a couple of times already. The PlayStation YouTube channel actually has a very short, like, three and a half minute video 
interviewing Martin about the music of Child of Light, which is cool. That's also where they talk to the Cirque du Soleil folks. Uh, she was actually brought on from the beginning. According to her, Ubisoft had like a list of artists. And when they were talking to all of them and she voiced interest in being part of the project first, they were like, all right, you're in, let's go. Uh, and she knows that when they asked her to do the music, they didn't actually have all that much material for her to work with yet. They were like, no character designs, very little concept art, just bare bones. So she started small. And she kind of assumed that they'd really only use piano and acoustic guitar, which is where she mostly lives. She's a pianist by trade, mostly. And then, you know, possibly some cello in there, too. But then it came to the battle music, and they wanted that to be more intense, because, you know, it's battle music. And so they commissioned the Bratislava Symphony Orchestra to record those specific pieces. Uh, and there's one thing that was also in that video. They do a short bit talking to the, the Foley guy for the game. So this isn't music-based, but I absolutely loved this piece of trivia. When they were trying to figure out, like, what sound are we going to use for Aurora's wings flapping? Uh, nothing sounded right. Not the usual stuff, like, you know, taking a broom or something and, and lightly doing the bristles on the hand or anything. That just didn't sound right. And somebody came up with the idea of... Why don't you make the sound be a flower being lightly tapped on your hand? And that's what the sound is. Man, Foley artists just do great work, honestly. I've done a little bit of Foley art in an amateur sense in my life, and it's a lot of fun. And boy, howdy, those people can do some magic. So let's jump into five critical tracks, because this soundtrack is... So good. It's so good. Let's start with critical track number one. This is Aurora's theme. So this is one of the first themes that you hear in the game. It is this beautiful piano and cello piece, just absolutely serene and has this mournful tone to it, which I think is probably to reflect Aurora's desire to go home and see her father, who seems like he is literally dying of grief at her loss. But... It kind of, I feel like, manages to sort of keep the whimsy of the world around her. Like, this still feels like, oh, you're in a fantasy world. Uh, it's, it's really neat. During this part, you're like flying around floating islands and stuff like that. It's really cool. And I, I really respect the way that this song seems to be able to reflect both sides of the coin there. Also establishing an important character theme if she's the protagonist and... It's very easy on the ears. It's it's nice to listen to, really pleasant. But yeah, also has that kind of sorrowful, mournful tone. You're right, with the cello, I think, kind of helps add that. Mm -hmm. The cello is definitely, I think, the, the star of this song. 
But hey, let's get out of the pleasant to listen to and get more in the hype to listen to category real quick because critical track number two is Jupiter's Lightning. So this is one of the battle themes in the game, the other being called Dark Creatures. I don't know what decides which one plays. It could be like this plays during sneak attacks and the other one plays regularly, or maybe it just cycles between the two at random. I don't know. But this one's my favorite between the two. It ramps up in intensity just immediately. It feels really powerful, really triumphant, and honestly, kind of nails the sort of tone that I'd expect to see in like a Final Fantasy game, which fits their inspirations. Yeah, you're right. It hits that pretty well right on the head. Though I thought of first Nino Kuni. Mmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Not necessarily, you know, fitting Joe Hisaishi's style, but like the kind of orchestration in a battle track like this just kind of made me think of that game. Yeah, I could I could absolutely see that. You can hear the orchestration in this one, like, pay off super well. Wow. Yeah, the money to hire that Bratislava orchestra was uh, definitely worth it. Yeah, uh, Ubisoft had some cash and they weren't afraid to flaunt it. After that, we're going to tone it down once more. For critical check number three, Little Girl Gen. Maybe it's Jen. I don't know. There's no voice acting in this game outside of a narrator who never says her name. So, But I really like this piece. It is a beautiful and just really sad piece. And like, it even brings some violin and woodwinds in there. And that really, really adds to the piano and cello stuff that just, ah, it's kind of like an emotional gut punch, kind of, which fits Gen's story very well. Because, you know, her story's kind of sad. She's one of, like, two survivors of her entire village. Uh, and it's it's a very sad predicament to be in. I think this plays in a few places outside of her village, but I could not off the top of my head mention what places those would be. But this is a very, very nice piece. I do like this piece, but... I feel like, yeah, the additional instruments are nice. I feel like you could have gotten away with a lighter mix, though. It just feels like a lot of layers are present. And again, I'm speaking out of a point of ignorance where I don't know necessarily what Jen's uh, story is and, and her, her tragedy and heartbreak. So it could be, you know, symbolizing, well, all the things kind of weighing on her and weighing her down. But I feel like you could have gotten away with something lighter, even if it was still layered here. 
I could see that. It does feel like there's a lot going on in the track, but if it's only in the village where Jen lives, that's fairly late in the game, like very late. Mm. So, I don't know. But let's get into my favorite song on the soundtrack. Oh, I love this song so much. It is critical track number four, Metal Gleamed in the Twilight. First of all, what a metal title. That's awesome. Second of all, uh, damn, this song plays during boss fights, and it just ramps up the intensity even harder than Jupiter's Lightning does. Like I said, this is my favorite song in the game. And just, this is where you can see, like, oh yeah, Ubisoft had that full orchestra money, like 100%. But I also, it's not in the clip, but at the very beginning of the song, for the first couple seconds, it's just piano. And then it builds up into the full orchestra, and I think that's a really, really cool effect. Uh, this is a fantastic piece. I adore it. That is an awesome effect. That is super cool. Uh, yeah, wow. You know, something like an orchestrated sample or something like that would not have done this justice. You're right. Spending the money was definitely worth it on this one. I get the impression from it where if we ever get a Final Fantasy VI remake, of anything like that. Uh, it gives me the impression of a, a battle theme or a boss theme, like from that game, but to imagine it fully orchestrated like that, uh, it gives, I think, those same kind of tones. And so I think when they're trying to emulate Final Fantasy VIII, something similar, uh, does a really good job there. I agree. Favorite piece on this one. Yeah, it's fantastic. Our final track on the Critical Five, it's Off to Sleep. And This is the credits theme. Vocals are by Kauda Prat herself. Another beautiful piece, honestly, like she has got some pipes there. She also seems to have a knack for beautiful piano pieces, which I guess, you know, shouldn't come as a surprise. Considering she's a prodigy. <laughs> yeah, her 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 main fo- specialty is pianist, so I would hope she's very good at that. I also just really like the the Lyrics of this song have, like, this theme of sort of hope and bonds with people we love, but also has this sort of theme of, like, maybe we'll be separated at some point, but, you know, we'll we'll come together eventually. We'll be back together eventually. It's very, very stirring. I really like this song. Hearing this piece on its own separately, I was just thinking, like, oh, this better be an end credits theme. And the fact that it is, yeah, you, you did well, Miss Martin. Yeah, very, very, very good. So, 
Strikes on the cutting room floor, I got a couple that I really couldn't justify putting on the Critical 5, but they are important songs I feel like I should bring up. For instance, uh, I should at least put one of the town themes on here, being Bulmus Populi. As you might guess, this plays in the city of Bulmus Populi. Shocker. Uh, it is a nice sort of relaxed city theme. And Bulmus Populi is very... It's a bit of a bigger city than you'll find elsewhere in the game, where all of the, like, mouse people live. And it's very, very uh, revolving around commerce. Everybody there is is obsessed with making money and, and being salesmen and stuff like that. And, I don't know, this sort of has this good movement to it, but also feels a little bit more laid back and relaxed. I, I like the song a lot. Now that I know that the populi are like the mouse folk, I think it does explain the kind of lighter tone a little bit more that I think that fits and checks out. Also, kind of keeping it in the fantastic sort of realm, you know, the, the fantasy sort of style here. Uh, I think it's a really neat town theme. It's different than I think you would find most town themes in an RPG, but fitting for this kind of game. Mm-hmm. And for the second track on the cutting room floor, it is Hymn of Light. This is the music for the final boss. Yeah, maybe it should be on the Critical 5, but like, I kind of like Metal Gleaming in the Twilight better as a boss theme. I think it's a better piece, but like, this one's still very good. I think my only real problem with it is it, I feel like it doesn't ramp up the intensity enough. Metal Gleaming in the Twilight is like a step up from Jupiter's Lightning. Mm-hmm. And it feels like this song should have been a bit more of a step up from Metal Gleaming in the Twilight, and I don't think it quite lands that. But again, it's still a really good song and a very memorable fight, so it's got to be on here in some form. I agree. It's a great piece, but I don't think it feels like a final boss. I feel like, if anything, it seems too positive and too presupposing that you'll be victorious in a way, at least in the clip uh, that we played. But you're right, you know, Metal Gleaming in the Twilight felt like a threat. And this doesn't feel like it as much. Yeah. Again, it's good, but I think the regular boss theme really gets that mindset a lot better. So what will I never forget about Child of Light? I mean, I played it recently, like very recently. Uh, the, the art is gorgeous and I like the battle theme overall, but I think the interruption mechanic gets kind of frustrating. Like, the way they sort of combat that is if you know that the enemy is going to get to the end before you can put off your attack, you could choose to defend with your turn, and then you go back into waiting, and you like, then you get to move a little bit faster, I think. But it never felt like that worked. 
And so that's my real only problem with it. But I think honestly, it's probably going to be the music. Uh, it's, it's just super good. I, I very much recommend this game for somebody looking for a shorter RPG experience. I knew it was a good game and I knew it was a good soundtrack. I didn't know it was this good of a soundtrack. And so I'm pleasantly surprised to see that, though I don't know if I'll be digging out my Wii U just to play it. <laughs> yeah, Switch is probably the easiest place to get it at this point. But, you know, it might be one of those games that, like, everybody owns on Steam and just doesn't know. I don't know. I don't <laughs> think I own it on Steam. But and who knows? Steam has a lot of those. It also reminds me of, you talking about games that could be in your library, A Child of Eden was that game that was a connect base thing i think it was a tetsuya mizuguchi game let's check here yeah it is a rail shooter uh another ubisoft game oddly enough they put out within three years because it was a 2011 game child of blank child of eden in 2011 child of light in 2014 uh that's that's real interesting <laughs> yeah i've seen the box art of this game somewhere but i think that's as far as i've gotten uh, I do wish that Ubisoft would uh, put out more games like this, but they're too busy at the moment making Assassin's Creed Forever, a game nobody asked for. Uh, Certainly not me. Yeah, just make another Assassin's Creed. It doesn't have to be a games as a service thing. Just make another one. Oh my god. But yeah, I kind of wish... We'd see more stuff like this, but also it's kind of become easier for indie teams to make stuff like this over the years. So I, I am sure there's some team out there making something that was heavily inspired by Child of Light as well. They should be. That's a good point. And you now have EA who's trying to be like, we're a big publisher and we're helping indies and all that. It's, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Say what you will about EA. The one thing they do right is they do seem to treat their uh, indies pretty well. No one else, but indies pretty well. So, to transition to our next game, we like to talk about a fan cover, fan remix, something like that. Have we mentioned Lindsay Sterling a single time in this show yet? We have to have mentioned her, right? I would hope so, but I don't remember a time when she would have come up. Uh, in case anybody doesn't know, Lindsey Sterling is a super talented violinist uh, who does a lot of game covers and stuff. And she did a Child of Light medley, and it's super, super good. So you should go check out the full thing. But uh, we're going to play a little clip, and then we will uh, be right back. Look, I know Lindsey Sterling tours worldwide and all that, famous musician, but her cover of this Child of Light piece has more than 9 million views. Yeah. Get dunked on, baby, playing with toys. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so good, though. Lindsey Sterling is so talented. Yes, definitely listen to the whole thing for sure. But now it's time for me to talk about my game that I'm covering this week. And that is Ghost of Tsushima. 
Ghost of Tsushima we've mentioned briefly on Original Sound Chat before because it was our fifth best soundtrack of 2020 in our Best of 2020 episode at the end of last year. So we've highlighted some of these songs in that episode, but we get to talk about this game more at a couple on the cutting room floor. Should be a good time. And it's timely too, honestly, because Ghost of Tsushima released July 17th, 2020 for PlayStation 4. It's one of those big PS4 exclusives in 2020, along with The Last of Us Part 2. Then several months after that, a free multiplayer mode called Ghost of Tsushima Legends released on October 16th, 2020. But it is timely because Ghost of Tsushima Director's Cut just launched for PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4 on August 20th, 2021. It includes a new island to explore as downloadable content for at least the base game on PS4, but when it comes to the PS5 version, you get exclusive features, a lot of the dual sense, the haptic features and things like that. Also, full Japanese lip sync. Wow, I wish the original version of the game had that. I wasn't aware that that was added in the PS5 version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it might actually be worth it to get it and play it. Who knows? The game is developed by Sucker Punch Productions and published by Sony Interactive Entertainment. Ghost of Tsushima is a third-person, open-world, action-adventure stealth game. You start as a noble samurai with face-to-face -face combat, but eventually become a ninja-like assassin to defend your home from ruthless invaders. So basically, it's the Assassin's Creed game set in feudal Japan that everybody clamors for. If you feel like those people at Ubisoft will never make that game play Ghost of Tsushima, you will not be disappointed. There's also a story with, I think it was the guy, the Bad Take Stadium Man, who tried to say that like uh, streamers should pay developers for licenses to use their games is streaming which is the dumbest take ever but that guy apparently worked for ubisoft and was in charge of a lot of assassin's creed for a little bit he's the guy that said like nobody actually wants a samurai assassin's creed game it would be boring i believe he also said that about egypt <laughs> uh and maybe greece not like though that became two assassin's creed games after he left or anything but you know yeah, I feel like he was with Ubisoft during like the Assassin's Creed 3, Far Cry 3 time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, that, oh, that was a thing. Anyway, as Jin Sakai, you get to use your katana, a bow and arrow, kunai knives for throwing, and distractions like smoke bombs to your advantage. You also have four different sword stances that work best for different types of enemies. You also get a fifth one later. And uh, this really helps mix up the combat. It's not the same animations that you see over and over and over again. You could either go in hot with a showdown dual challenge as a proud samurai, or you could go in quietly with stealth. But pay attention to the world around you as the wind blows toward your targeted waypoint and animals will show up to help guide you to hidden collectibles. The plot of Ghost of Tsushima goes basically as follows. Quote, in 1274, a Mongolian invasion fleet led by Kotun Khan lands on the Japanese island of Tsushima. 
Resident samurai Jin Sakai and his uncle, Lord Shimura, joined the rest of the island's army in an attempt to repel the invasion. However, the battle ends in disaster. With the samurai army killed, Shimura captured, and Jin grievously wounded and left for dead. Jin is found and revived by Yuna, a local thief, and she informs him that all villages have fallen to the Mongols. Jin storms Koten's stronghold at Castle Kaneda in an attempt to rescue Shimura, but is defeated by Kotun in combat and thrown off the bridge, though he survives. So basically, Jin must recruit and gather allies from around Tsushima Island if he has any hope of rescuing his uncle, who is the Jito of the island. Uh, the Jito being the military steward that is appointed by the Shogun. And he also wants to repel Kotun Khan and the Mongol forces, kick them off the island. So, can Jin save his uncle, Lord Shimura? And will he have to abandon his honorable samurai code to do so? Joe, here's where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with Ghost of Tsushima? Well, first of all, I didn't know this was a stealth sequel to Final Fantasy X. <laughs> uh, I guess it's not weird that Yuna would become a thief because Ten Two exists. So, you know, huh? odd places where crossovers happen, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I own it. It's installed on my PS4, has been for over a year. Have not jumped into it at all. I've seen bits and pieces of my roommate playing it, and he really liked it. So, eventually I will get to it, but man, there's too many video games. It's one of those that just sort of fell by the wayside, because like, oh man, there's so many video games, there's too many video games. There are a lot of video games for sure. And I feel like this one, it came out a couple months after The Last of Us Part 2. And it had a big fan following in 2020 of people being like, I don't want to support Naughty Dog. Let's throw our weight behind Ghost of Tsushima instead. And, you know, it's it's a good game. I had a great time with it because I love Assassin's Creed. Therefore, this was right up my alley. I enjoyed it so much that I platinumed Ghost of Tsushima on PS4. That took a bit of work, but it was a really good time, and I enjoyed it a lot. I feel like if you're going to play it, definitely do the director's cut. Uh, it's, you have a PS5 now, so I mean, that that helps. But it's just going to make it a much better experience overall. And I feel like it's one that you can really custom to however you want to experience it. Do you want to experience the English dub, which is actually quite good from what I've seen of it? Do you want to play with... Japanese voiceover. I think that made it better, though the original version did suffer with some of the lip flap stuff supposedly fixed in the director's cut. Do you want to play in Kurosawa mode? We'll get to what that means shortly, but it's a game that I think you can really play however you'd like, and it's it's just a good, fun stealth action-adventure game. So, Sucker Punch Productions was coming off of 2014's infamous First Light, which was that standalone DLC with Fetch, Laura Bailey's character, uh, in Infamous Second Son, which released earlier that year. And the team wanted to make another open-world game. That's what they're pretty good at. Ideally, though, they wanted one without waypoints. Before they decided on the setting, Sucker Punch considered various other settings and themes such as Pirates, the Scottish outlaw Rob Roy McGregor, 
and the Three Musketeers, but they kept coming back to the idea of feudal Japan and telling the story of a samurai warrior. And then they came across a historical account of the Mongol invasion of Tsushima in 1274, and boom, everything clicked. Sucker Punch's new project was announced as being in early development in December 2015. And so, it's a Western studio that's trying to make a game about samurai and Japanese history and Japanese culture. And boy, you best believe that they had lots of consultation with experts <laughs> on feudal Japanese culture. You don't want to get anything wrong in that regard. One that they particularly consulted was historical sword fighting expert David Ishimaru. And it was interesting to come across a note about the haiku side quests. In the game, you come across these little points of, you know, where Jin can just sit and relax and ponder and think and create haiku. And the English version of this, at least the dub, does a pretty good job with holding to that famous 575 syllable pattern. But if you play the game with Japanese voiceover, the subtitles are, you know, the English subtitles are in the 575, but the Japanese voiceover, not 575 when they try to translate it. This is because, according to Japanese localizer Daisuke Ishidate, he noted how a game set in the Kamakura period in Japan featuring haiku would be dissonant and it would break immersion for Japanese players because apparently the two don't go together. So apparently the Japanese version of the game opts for the waka style of poetry. Hmm. All right. That is very interesting, actually. Yeah. So I think just, you know, really taking some of these things into thought and really making sure they get it right and portray the time right. The team was also inspired by Japanese cinema, especially ones featuring samurai, right? Including Akira Kurosawa films such as Seven Samurai from 1954 and Sanjiro from 1962. The second time in a month that we've talked about Sanjiro, which is crazy. <laughs> we talked about Michiru Oshima and Twilight Princess and how she worked on a spiritual successor or a sequel to Sanjiro. I, I don't know. So this is where we come to Kurosawa mode which is a mode that takes direct homage from the samurai films of the time. And you could toggle this audiovisual style where the game would be black and white, a higher contrast, less dynamic audio, kind of sounds a little bit more tinny, like it's coming through cheaper speakers, Japanese audio with English subtitles. It works for some people, though I think the gorgeous color of the game and the world is lost, obviously, if you turn it black and white. So it's really up to some people and how, if they have any affinity for those old samurai films at the time, it's a nice touch. It's a good inclusion to have. Give people options. The reveal trailer for Ghost of Tsushima debuted at Paris Games Week. Oh, remember when that was a thing? Debuted in October 2017, and it followed up with a gameplay demo at E3 2018. You know, the Sony show where they had like, we've got four big games and it's going to be in like different environments. And here's a man playing a shakuhachi, a Japanese flute, live. And his name is Cornelius Boots. After we've taken like 20 minutes to move all of the journalists out of The Last of Us set. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, then it became the focus of a state of play presentation in December 2019, so almost a year and a half later, also another showing at the Game Awards a couple days later. This was a game that had to be pushed back almost a month from its original June 26th release date because 2020, COVID-19. Honestly, thankfully probably for them that most of the game was done at that point. The game reviewed well with a Metacritic score of 83. Critics praised the visual art style, the beauty of the open world, and the combat. But the enemy AI and the repetitiveness of some of the activities in the open world were some critical points. People found it kind of annoying how suddenly a fox shows up or a little bird's chirping to try to get you to go somewhere else. I think it's a hit or miss for some people, honestly. But despite all that sensitivity of a Western studio working on a historical samurai game, from all that I've read, Japan loves Ghost of Tsushima. Like, they thought that their culture was done really well and presented super well. In fact, it's the third Western game to ever receive a perfect 40 out of 40 score from Famitsu Magazine. Hey. So, uh, you know, kudos to Sucker Punch and the Ghost of Tsushima team. If you're wondering, The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim and Grand Theft Auto V are the other two. The game sold through more than 2.4 million units worldwide in its first three days of sale, making it PlayStation 4's fastest-selling first-party original IP debut. So, yeah, it was super successful for a new franchise. As of March 2021, the game has sold over 6.5 million units. This was an award darling in 2020, at least for getting nominated in a variety of different things. It was nominated eight times at the Game Awards, and it won Best Art Direction and the fan-voted Player's Voice, nominated 11 times at the BAFTAs, but it only won Audio Achievement. It was nominated nine times at the Dice Awards, and it won four of those, Adventure Game of the Year, Outstanding Achievement in Original Music Composition, Audio Design, and Art Direction. And it was nominated six times at the Game Developers' Choice Awards, where it won Best Visual Art. At all these big Game Awards shows, it was nominated for Game of the Year at all of them. So I think that's a pretty good indication that in a very busy year of 2020 with The Last of Us Part Two and Hades and all of that, Ghost of Tsushima, despite its Metacritic score, in the running in a lot of categories. Weird about the Metacritic score, though. That's... Man, sometimes that just gets really weird, huh? <laughs> yeah, you don't see that too often. Uh, I think it's really just telling on the style and the artistry of the game just overall. It succeeds in a whole bunch of different ways. But what is the legacy of Ghost of Tsushima? Well, we mentioned the Legends multiplayer mode that came out. That was a free update. The Director's Cut is out now. And here's something. Creative leads Nate Fox and Jason Connell were named as Tourism Ambassadors to Tsushima Island in March 2021. (laughs) They were named as those who, quote, have spread the name and history of Tsushima through their works. They were recognized by the real Tsushima Island and the people there. See, again, Japan loves Ghost of Tsushima from all that I can tell. And this is another one where on March 25th, 2021, Sony Pictures and PlayStation Productions announced the development of a film adaptation of the game with Chad Stahelski directing. That feels too early. Yeah. <laughs> that, that Like, that game, 
has barely been out a year and you're already like, oh, got to make this into a movie right now. I'm just going to throw it on the pile like of movie projects that'll probably never get off the ground, honestly. <laughs> it's still a miracle that Uncharted is getting its movie for real. Oh, I my gosh. I still don't yeah. believe that movie's actually real. I think Tom Holland is gaslighting all of us. Mark Wahlberg, too. Yeah. What the heck? I don't, I don't buy him as Sully, but we'll see. Uh, you know, anyway, I think it just kind of echoes like the whole Child of Light thing with the TV series. And it's like, they can say they're starting to work on it all they want. I don't know if anything's going to happen about it. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack of Ghost of Tsushima, one of the composers, his name is Ilan Eshkeri. And Ilan Eshkeri was born on April 7th, 1977 in London, England. During his childhood, he learned to play the violin and guitar and later went on to play in a rock band. And he wanted to get in the music business at age 19, specifically playing rock music. His thoughts were, he said uh, in an interview, he said he didn't want to work very hard. He wanted to make lots of money and have the adoration of women. <laughs> you know, got his priorities, I guess. Yeah, but you don't go into the music industry for that. It it's, uh, didn't work out <laughs> on all three of those, apparently. So instead, he attended Leeds University, where he studied music and English literature, and he started working for composer Edward Shearmer. And before you know it, he's in the music industry, but it's more like he was in the film industry, not the rock music industry. So he continued and started working on composing for films. He's done some really interesting things, like he collaborated with Burberry in a landmark fashion show in 2016. He composed and conducted a choral symphonic suite called Reliquary which then reached number one in the UK classical chart. And he has other live performance highlights that include a unique concert for thousands in the gardens of the Louvre in Paris, uh, the Royal Albert Hall in London, and the Rudolfinum in Prague. His many creative partnerships include artists such as Annie Lennox, David Gilmore, Sinead O'Connor, Katie Tunstall, Tom O'Dell, Ash, and the Cinematic Orchestra. He is also recently worked with the European Space Agency on music for astronaut Tim Peake's Principia mission. I didn't know that space missions needed music, but okay. Uh, this music has gone on to be played in concert as titled Space Station Earth, and this is apparently returning to tour worldwide in 2022. Sure it is. Uh <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see how the world shapes up. What was the music used for? What does that mean? To make the astronaut feel good and epic as he was taking off? I have no idea. I have no idea. It's something I got to look up for sure. Now I'm curious. He is a music branch member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and he is also a voting member of BAFTA. You can follow him on Twitter at Ilan Eshkeri. That's I-L-A-N-E-S-H-K-E-R-I. His discography, when it comes to games, sure, there's Ghost of Tsushima, but before that, the only game project he worked on was he composed the music for The Sims 4. And for the times we've talked about The Sims 3 and The Sims 2 and all that, would not have expected a composer like Ilan Ishkari to be the one like, yeah, EA, we're going to go with him for The Sims 4. I, but wow. That's to be fair, uh, if I learned anything from covering Sims 2 and 3... None of the composers that work on those games make sense to be the people to be working on those <laughs> games. Not a single one of them. I suppose that's true. You're right. But primarily as a film composer, he's scored for films such as Layer Cake, 
Hannibal Rising, Stardust, The Young Victoria, Centurion, Kick-Ass, Coriolanus, Johnny English Reborn, 47 Ronin, Still Alice, Shaun the Sheep Movie, Collide, The Exception, and The White Crow. He's also done some TV series or specials, including Great Barrier Reef, Dr. Thorne, Riviera, and most recently, A Perfect Planet. That's uh, one of his many collaborations with Sir David Attenborough. As far as historical development research for Ghost of Tsushima, though, the soundtrack was composed by Ilana Shigeru and Shigeru Umebayashi, and the two had worked together on that 2007 film, Hannibal Rising, so it wasn't the first time they had worked together. Ishkeri is also credited on the soundtrack with playing violin and ethnic bowed instruments, so did a little bit of playing as well. According to Bradley Meyer, the audio director for the game, said, quote, In our very first prototype, we created a small mission where you got on a horse, rode across a scenic expanse, and fought a Mongol warlord inside a Japanese fort. We used a track from one of Ilan's film scores for the horse ride section, and the entire studio reacted to it electrically. So that makes sense why they tapped him to compose a lot of the music. And then I would imagine that working with Umebayashi in the past, and it's a Japanese game, a big open world game, a lot of music, wanted some diverse opinions there. I feel like that's a natural tap there to get the two working together again. Many Japanese instruments were featured such as the shakuhachi, which is a flute, the biwa, which is apparently a really rare instrument in the world these days. It's a short-necked fretted lute. And the koto, which is a stringed musical instrument. Kotos are cool, too. You should watch videos of people playing kotos. It's rad. Mm-hmm. It also makes me think of the uh, shamisen as well, that kind of yeah, stringed instrument as well. So Ishigeri studied ancient Japanese music, folk songs, court music, sacred music, and taiko, as well as the different pentatonic scales that were used in Japanese music. He just dove right in, and that really helped inform his base for the music and really focused on establishing character themes and kind of going from there and worked with Umebayashi to kind of flesh out the score. Uh, a lot of the tracks on the soundtrack, it's Ilana Shkeri with the credit, but then Umebayashi gets the credit for a lot of these Tsushima suites where these big, long pieces broken up into different acts, and they kind of feature multiple themes in the game. It's it's interesting how that's broken out there. Also, another uh, thing of note for audio and sound design, Sucker Punch sent an audio team to Japan to record different sounds, including bird songs. So there you go. Some of those birds that kind of flutter in, those are supposedly authentic. Let's get to the soundtrack for Ghost of Tsushima, though. And this is with the five critical tracks. We start with the first one. I think it has to be this one, right? This is Jin Sakai. Joe, are you familiar with the title card splash of this game? I am not, actually. Okay. Well, I'll have to promise that when you play it, it's an amazing moment. I think you'll recognize it as such. I think I mentioned it in our Best of 2020 as it was the musical moment of the year. 
period in 2020 because it's just a stellar choice of this is the music that plays after you kind of go through this really linear section at the beginning of the game and you're getting on your horse and you're riding and the open world is about to open up to you as you go through these trees and you have this big expanse just open up to you and you're out of the linear section. The world's now yours. Go nuts. And this music, this orchestral swell builds up as Jin Sakai's theme. So it really establishes that light motif. But at that big hit in the clip, the title card comes. Sucker Punch Productions presents Ghost of Tsushima. Like, it's an amazing moment. Uh, I think you have a lot of people who react either in Twitch clips or YouTube uh, highlights or things like that. This is an amazing moment when you play. And I feel like just great orchestration here with the violins that carry the main melody, the percussion that builds to hit this point. And it's such a high moment. It really... So it's like, oh yeah, this is a game that has to be taken seriously with a soundtrack that has to be taken seriously. Had to be here, had to cover it first. Just a, a stellar moment in video games and music coming together. It sounds cool. Uh, I, I'm like struggling to think of what it could be, but I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to maybe get to this game sometime near the end of the year, maybe early next year. I don't know. Again, all comes down to the fact that there's too many video games, but it is definitely on my list, and I will definitely uh, keep my eye out, and you'll probably get a message when I see it. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Number two on the Critical Five. Let's get to, I think it's some combat music. This is The Way of the Samurai. The Way of the Samurai. I would imagine that this is played during samurai combat. Uh, this isn't necessarily a game where people have done their due diligence to be like, this music plays here. And you get sometimes you get lucky on like fandoms or wikias where people will point that out. Didn't seem that way for this one. So I, yeah, I would imagine it's during samurai combat. I really like with this one how the rhythm is very defined and rigid much like the discipline of the combat that you you have this samurai code that you're adhering to. But there's also some fluidity and flair to the melody as your movements have to be to be an effective samurai. The chanting here is fantastic. It makes it a really memorable melody. And it's like listening to this one, it's like, oh yeah, this has to be here for sure. The horns coming in to add a little bit of extra melody. I just really like this piece a whole lot. And I think it really establishes the the kind of rootedness, but also the creativity of samurai combat. I absolutely love the chanting. To be honest, I have a bit of a weak spot for games where they have a battle song and there's chanting. It's super cool. And this one really uses it to really good effect. Uh, I could definitely see myself slicing somebody in half with a katana to this song. Or, more realistically... Getting sliced in half by a, a sword to this song. 
Oh, it's it's fun. I think they did a really, really good job with that combat. I mean, critics agree, but it's definitely engaging. When you have the way of the samurai, you kind of have the other side of the coin. This is number three on the critical five. This is the way of the ghost. This is the first track on the OST, and it's actually one of the first songs that Ashgari wrote for the game. I'd imagine that it's for ghost combat specifically, I would imagine. At the very least, it represents the diving into the ghost persona, if you will. Ashgari said, quote, It's all about how the people of Tsushima see him, being Jin. He is their hero, strong, infallible, inspiring, and full of hope. But what really fascinated me about Jin is the contrast of what is going on inside him. So I think it's important to note that, especially in the clip here, note how it kind of starts with Jin's theme, this da-da-da-da, that kind of rising melody, but then his experiences have shaped him as he's struggling with this do I stay as the samurai? Do I take these less noble tactics with stealth and the ghost persona? And so too does this theme change from where it was at the beginning of the game. A super important theme. I feel like if it's not Jin Sakai in that opening huge amazing moment, this is probably the theme that best represents the musical tones and energy of this this game, Ghost of Tsushima. First of all, can I just point out that you you sang uh, a bar or so of it, and all I could hear was the Catherine Game Over music. The dun 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 dun. <laughs> this, I I needed to point that out because it would have driven me insane. And if not, uh, so when we're talking ghost combat, this is like stealth. You're you're doing stealth stuff. You're stabbing people in the back instead of facing them face-to-face like a man. I think this theme is very good, but I don't know. It doesn't fit what in my head is stealth music. Uh, Games have kind of conditioned me to be like, yeah, that's just like low, very simple, sneaky music. Yeah, I think you have been conditioned that way, right? But I think they have to kind of keep in touch with the historical time period. And so you can't deviate too much to suddenly be like, now we're using electronic music. Like, it's not, it's not going to be like that. I don't see why not. (laughs) I think that'd be awesome. They're cowards for not doing that. Now that, yeah, you're right. They should, should not do that. (laughs) But I don't know. It's just, it feels a little more present than I'm used to stealth themes being, I guess that makes sense. I think I see it as like this was inevitable given the Mongols invading and, you know, you can paint it as a conflict all you want, but to save your homeland, this is inevitable. So you're not drastically changing too much, but it's more of the natural evolution of Jean and his character. 
that's just my theory take on it anyway. So let's get to number four on the critical five. This is where we're getting into the Tsushima Sweets. And this one is Tsushima Sweet 2 Shurai. Ah, yes, this part of the clip in particular, because it's like a 10-minute piece, as you'd imagine a suite to be, a collection of different songs, almost like it's a, a medley or so. Uh, the composer credit on this one is Shigeru Umebayashi, but this part in the clip in particular, uh, it's, it's the moment where you unlock that fifth and final sword stance. And, of course, with the suite, it has a whole bunch of moments uh, in Shurai. There's also like the regular dual music when you're kind of facing one-on-one -on -one with another samurai. So another great part of it. But I mean, this moment here, great moment in the game, just kind of like unlocking that final power, if you will. And then it's fitting, right? How this is kind of a combination of the ghost theme and the rigid chanting of the samurai theme. It's not too intense because you're now like walking slowly like you you are a badass like you're at full power here pretty much basically almost complete mastery of both forms and it's up to you to use this full potential to pursue the end game. So I think it's just it's a great moment of unlocking that last little bit kind of fully committing to embracing the ghost form but you still have your samurai foundations within you. This, I think, is my favorite song on the Critical Five, uh, almost based purely on the clip alone. <laughs> this song sounds really cool, and again, I've mentioned it already. Uh, man, chanting just gets you hyped up. It's good stuff. I like it. Yeah, and it fits super well here, right? So I think you couldn't have a, a historical Japanese game without having that kind of chanting. Let's wrap up the Critical Five, though, and this is another Tsushima Suite. It's Tsushima Suite 4, Kodoku. like I added this one because it's another moment where you're listening to it. it's like oh yeah I know I've heard it a lot in the game it's a, a very distinct theme with this da 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 da, -da, -da. like it's so I can't remember exactly where it plays because I feel like I've heard it a lot but I mean man it's a foreboding theme right you think it could represent the Mongol threat just because of how different how strong how simple it is but i feel like when i listen to it it could also just as well be a pure vengeance theme like you're just going on a tear not in a frenetic way but a very cold calculated 
execution of vengeance. Again, with it being the Tsushima Suite, though, it is composed by Shigeru Umibayashi, or at least that's how the credit goes. But yeah, this one, I don't think is necessarily tied to a moment, just it's a very memorable leitmotif in the game. I could easily see this being the antagonists. That that would very much make sense. But also, yeah, it would make sense if this was you taking your revenge. Mm-hmm. But I, I think if it's better, like, it feels different enough that it would make sense if it was, you know, the invaders as opposed to the defenders, if that makes sense. It, that's what makes sense to me. It's, it's really cool, though. I really like this song. I agree with you. Uh, but yeah, I think the key is here. You're going to hear this one quite a bit in the game. A couple tracks on the cutting room floor here. Speaking of tracks, you're going to hear quite a bit, especially if you go on that completionist route. The first one here is Forgotten Song. We mentioned those haiku sections, the haiku side quests. This is the music that plays when Jin sits and is trying to relax and observe the world around him to start building his haiku. So uh, that that bit right at the beginning of the clip, right? Where the piece starts and this... The, the singer, uh, Japanese vocals are credited to Junko Ueda on the soundtrack. It just gets you in a calm, relaxing mood. And I feel like it's... It's a musical leitmotif that just puts you right... If you've played the game, it just puts you right there with that haiku section. It's it's very memorable. If you didn't do much of the haikus, because honestly, it's really a lot of uh, cosmetic upgrades like headbands and stuff like that. You kind of customize it with your own poetry. If you didn't do a lot of those, you don't hear this one as much. But if you go through and you're trying to check off all those boxes for full completion for platinuming the game, you know this piece. Yeah, I can imagine hearing this a lot, uh, but yeah, it's very relaxing uh, and and nice and serene. Just sort of feels good. I'm pretty sure that's a Kodo. I I don't know for sure, but I feel like it is. And again, Kodos are cool. It very well maybe, but it's definitely channeling those Japanese instruments to get you in the right mindset and environment. The other track on the cutting room floor is totally different. It is Sacrifice of Tradition. This plays during the final boss battle. And uh, let's see, without spoiling things, I feel like those who played the game, maybe I have just this thought on my own, but I feel like it's one of those final boss battles where you're hoping it doesn't go there and yet it totally does. And then the way they execute it, it's a perfect payoff and you can't imagine the game ending any differently. Uh, It's just done so well. You can really hear in the clip how it's, really calling back on Jin's theme and how it's 
definitely the end of this journey he's been on as the ghost through all that he's been through. Really, all of that extra instrumentation just adds to that culmination. You get those brassy chords in there with the orchestration, the strings. Oh, fantastic. I don't think it's memorable as like, oh, it's a classic final boss piece. So I don't think it's Critical 5 worthy. But I think it's worth a mention just to point out how they really did a good job with that final boss battle. Kudos to them. That's another theme between the two. Hey. Final boss themes that are on the cutting room floor. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, this is a really uh neat piece. It kind of feels like there's some form of like I don't want to say hesitancy, but that's the only thing that comes to mind. Hmm. In in some ways. I don't know. That's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from it overall. Good vibe to pick up on. I think you're rather astute with that. Nice job. So what will I never forget about this game? Ghost of Tsushima. It is one that, you know, as I'm deciding what games to play and all that, I don't see myself itching to return to Ghost of Tsushima, especially when I platinumed it. I feel like I had a really good experience with that. When I eventually do go back and play it, it's one to, I think, splurge on the director's cut and play that Iki Island DLC and all that. Does it not have a free upgrade? Is it not one of the games that does a free upgrade? No, um, it's I think it's like twenty dollars on PS4 and thirty on PS5. Hmm, that's odd because it's essentially DLC with adding the whole new island and all that. It's not just oh we're improving the textures and giving you these extra little PS5 things. It's like it's a full fledged DLC, but then kind of looping everything in a big director's cut. It's like with Death Stranding, right? Like you know they had a small charge if you already have the game, so. Yeah, I guess maybe more like the approach of Final Fantasy VII Remake Integrate. Yeah, I guess that sort of makes sense. Still odd being a first-party Sony game, but who am I to judge? One day I'll play it. One day. Again, I bought it at launch. I put it in my PS4. It installed the game. I took it out of my PS4. Actually, it might not have even been taken out of my PS4. That might actually (laughs) still be in there. No. Yes? Because I didn't buy Final Fantasy VII Remake physically. Hmm. I don't know. Point is, I'll play it one day. <laughs> I, I think it'd be a good idea to, especially the callbacks that they make to Sly Cooper, and you know, a big franchise that you love. And I feel like what I'll remember most is that like it was exactly the game I wanted it to be, and it totally delivered. And I'm sure it'll have potential for a sequel sometime in the future, maybe at the end of the ps5's life cycle or who knows maybe even sooner so yes artistic swords or swords with artistry aurora and her sword jin and his katana i guess that counts as a theme aside from the other couple little ones that we found throughout talking about (laughs) these games child of light and ghost of tsushima that will do it for us this week on original sound chat Back as another duo regularly scheduled episode. Hey, good to be back. Reunited and it feels so good. That's another song I don't know any of the other lyrics to. So good. So good. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at String Pixel. The video version of the show is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, but it's that MP3 podcast that you want. Hosted by Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. That's where Joe's other podcast, Smasterpieces, is hosted. And you can find Smasterpieces and Original Sound Chat 
wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, even on Spotify. We have a podcast feed on Spotify where you can get those episodes, but we also have a Spotify playlist. And if we cover a video game music track on the show and it's on Spotify, it's getting added to that monster playlist. Joe, what's being added this week? Both of these games are on Spotify, which I feel like is the first time that has happened in like a month (laughs) for us. But we're adding a few tracks uh, from Ghost of Tsushima, like the ones on the cutting room floor, because a lot of them were already there from Best of 2020. But yes, good to see Child of Light there as well. When you're done listening, you can find us on social media at SoundChatOST. Leave some feedback for us. How are we doing with these episodes? Leave some game suggestions for us. What would you like us to cover in the future? It's one of our big goals for 2021 is to cover more of those games. All right, Joe, who are we talking about next week? I'm so excited. Next week, we're finally going to talk about the one and only Ben Franklin. Oh, boy. One of our founding fathers of the United (laughs) States of America who writes lyrics for Atlas. Fantastic. (laughs) I am talking about Hiroaki Takeuchi. It should be a really good episode. I'm looking forward to that one for sure. All right. Let's play us out with a cover of a song from Ghost of Tsushima, whether it's on OC Remix, whether it's on YouTube. Found one from Oscar Palm Helmerson on YouTube. That's Oscar with a K. And he did a cover of The Way of the Ghost. He did six recordings of him on the cello. So it's like six cellos making this song. I think it was really neat. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care. (laughs) 